This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, good to have you with me this afternoon. Are you enjoying January? Maybe you're on holidays by the beach, made it to the city perhaps to wear a mask and enjoy beer in the concrete jungle. You could still be busy harvesting, but whatever you're up to, have you had a squeeze at the paper recently? The real estate section in particular, because if you have, you'd have noticed things are heating up. You'd have heard plenty about it in the city, no doubt, but it isn't just the metro area. Rural areas are seeing quite the hike as well. In just a moment, you'll hear from someone who recently sold their property for more than double what they paid 10 years ago. And by the sounds of it, he's probably not alone. There is evidence, certainly in the high rainfall belts, that 20% in the last 12 months is certainly there. And I think anywhere that's had a reasonable season, 20%, might be a low end. You'll hear what's thought to be driving that roughly 20% increase in land value soon. Also this afternoon, if you were married in the 80s, you might be familiar with a little bloom called baby's breath. Those little white flowers, quite delicate, intricate petals. They're probably not quite as popular as they were um, these days, unless you've got toxic levels of boron in your soils. Yes, from a wedding bouquet to improving your soils. How has baby's breath changed its image? You'll find out before one o'clock. It is seven past 12. Now, on Tuesday afternoon, a fire in Boyanup reached emergency level and it's been confirmed one bushfire volunteer was turned away from the fire ground because he's not received his COVID-19 vaccination. Five volunteers were given until the 31st of December to provide proof of vaccination. It's important to add this fire was being managed by the local government authority, not DFIS. But it does touch on the fear that many of you had last year with these vaccination mandates looming. What would happen when volunteers began being turned away from emergency situations? Dave Gossage is the president of Bushfire Volunteers WA. Dave, what do you make of this? Um, well, not surprised because you know, we said this right from the onset back when we, we strongly urged government not to make it mandatory for volunteers uh, is that there's going to be a consequence down the line. So and and our concern was that they hadn't actually fully considered the consequence of mandating the what they have uh, in regards to the vaccination. So I'm not surprised at all. Certainly, from our perspective, you know, we fully support full vaccination of everybody because it's the you know based on health advice that is the best advice we can give people. However, what we you know the members have made it clear to us is it's about people's civil rights and right to choose. And is it is it in the greater public good to not have people turn up and a whole town is burnt down or for the sake of somebody there doing the, doing the good volunteer? And this is the thing that people forget is about volunteering is just that, is they're spontaneous and volunteer and um, do the right thing to protect their communities. So I suppose, you know, there's arguments for all sides. You know, and we hear them from all sides. We got we got supporters, and we've got those who are naysayers, just like the government has. So, 
At the same at the same time, though, I mean, it was one volunteer out of uh, dozens apparently turned up to this fire, and um, it mm. was able to be brought under control from emergency level down to now. It's still sitting at a bushfire advice. So you could argue that this was a great example of how, um, although the mandate is in, it hasn't had a huge impact. Yeah, but I mean, that's only a very small small in- incident, isn't it? And if you what, what nobody knows what the consequences of of this on a, a major incident, but all we are strongly encouraging is that people um, still turn out and do the right thing and uh, you know get vaccinated and and try and you know keep their community safe because the effects on the uh, rural community is far greater than that with the metro and outer metro areas where you've got an abundance of people so you can afford to turn people away but out in rural and remote areas uh, you might only have five fireys and if only one's vaccinated well that's going to be a challenge and we've we've had those phone calls from those areas very concerned about what do we do so you know at the end of the day the the uh, liability and responsibility to, to enforce this sits with the with DFES and the local government concern not the bushfire volunteers the They've got to remember they are the volunteers, they're not paid bureaucrats. Um, they are there as a community member volunteering their time and the responsibility sits fairly and squarely with the local government and DFES and the state. What are you hearing about how many volunteers across WA, between DFES and local government volunteers? And I do understand there, there are different sort of um, ways that people need to uh, make their vaccination status known. But how many do you think across the board have either chosen not to get vaccinated or to not show proof of vaccination um, by this sort of 31st of December deadline? Well, it's a very hard question to answer because whilst the community statistics are showing 80 to 90 percent vaccinated uh, which is which would include heaps of volunteers no matter what agency they're from the proof of vaccination you know for DFES volunteers rests with them and for bushfire volunteers at the local level they only have to advise their local government so um, there's a lot of miscommunication about that they have to you know, bushfire volunteers have to notify DFES. Well, that's actually not true. They only have to notify and show their certificate of vaccination to their local government, and that's where it rests for bushfire volunteers. So there's a lot of misinformation going out there from some individuals. Uh, they are the facts, and that was reinforced yesterday when we met with the, the department and the other associations, uh, was the, the reporting lines for bushfire volunteers is only to their local government, not DFES. And so if they're hearing anything else, that that's false and misleading. Dave Gossage with you on The Country Hour this afternoon talking about the um, mandated vaccination um, for the volunteers across uh, WA, but in particular bushfire volunteers with one um, volunteer being turned away from a fire ground in Boyan Up earlier this week. And Dave, you mentioned there the meeting you had with DFES, a COVID briefing as such. Um, what's the latest you're hearing aside from sort of where people need to um, give their, their vaccination status? Um, how, how are you and, and DFES sort of working together? and what are you hearing from them about um, going forward as we, we get closer to the 5th of February? Certainly from our perspective, we're still strongly encouraging everyone gets vaccinated, uh, those that can, and if there's medical reasons, well, just get the medical um, exemption. That may pose a, pose a logistical challenge on fire ground, but at the end of the day, everything's workable. 
uh, DFAS enforced from their perspective. If volunteers end up going to a job that they run, they will be checking people in. You only just have to, if people have uploaded their certificate from um, my, my gov onto their phone wallet, um, that's all I'll need to show. And they talked about the the new app that's going to come out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, will make it even easier for people to be able to just show their vaccination. So that'll be a, a good stat, good good way of going. So. And, I mean, you've mentioned it a few times here, but the solution from your perspective going forward with, say, 80 to 90% of vaccination um, rate across across the state, and you you would think that's reflected in the bushfire volunteers as well, um, I, I guess your solution is to simply get vaccinated and and, um, and protect, be able to then protect your community? Yeah, look, it's it certainly, you know, it's, it comes down to a couple of factors is, you know, we, we've got to re- reflect the uh, collective view, which is from the extremes of anti-vaxxers through to pro-vaxxers and everything in between. You know, from our perspective, we strongly, you know, and based on health advice, we strongly recommend uh, that people do get vaccinated and do get that third and, and and potentially another dose down the track, which is something that's in the wind most probably. But certainly uh, the best advice is to do that. But you've got to understand that the the difference in complexities from the metro region versus a rural and remote community. So... Well, some people say, oh, it's only one person. Well, in the metro area where you've got, say, 60 volunteers and you lose one, that's, you know, only 59. But in a rural community where the brigade's only four, you lose one, you're down to three. And and people forget the context of, of effect uh, and flow on issues that, that evolve from that. Dave Gossage, thanks for your time this afternoon. Not a problem at all. Have a great day. He is the president of Bushfire Volunteers WA. Now, I did contact the Department of Fire and Emergency Services to ask how many volunteers have not provided proof of vaccination. It wasn't able to confirm numbers, but a a spokesperson said the state government was expected to make a formal announcement on the issue by the end of this week or early next week, so you'd assume next week at this stage. And I know that there is this difference between the um, the DFAS volunteers and the local shire arranged um, volunteers as well, so a, a little bit of work to, to be done in terms of getting the numbers across both of those sections, um, but certainly at least a, a few people um, have not had their vaccination or provided proof that they've received their COVID-19 vaccination. And in this one instance in Boynup, uh, one person was turned away from the fire ground during the emergency bushfire level. It's 16 past 12. ABC Radio, bushfire information. On the topic, there is a bushfire watch and act warning for Mount Clarence in the city of Albany. DFAS advises people stay clear of the walking tracks and roads around the fire and to be aware that Apex Drive is closed to all traffic. For more information, visit the Emergency WA website. That's emergency.wa.gov.au. That bushfire watch and act warning is in place for Mount Clarence in the city of of Albany. The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Now, the 2021-22 grain harvest has literally been one for the record books with most regions enjoying one of the best seasons ever. 
And with a bit of extra cash in the bank, maybe you're in a position to put an offer in on that neighbour's property you've been eyeing off for a couple of years. Well, real estate agents have already noticed a significant uptick in transactions and buyers are showing they're prepared to pay a lot more for land this year. Steve Vaughan is the director of Ray White Rural in WA. He says land prices have gone up at least 20% across the south. Because of the Christmas New Year break, we're still starting to see what implications are there. And it's not just about a very, very good season. It's a whole lot of things that have been building up over the last year or two, possibly even further. Low interest rates, good and reasonably high commodity prices across the board. And that's not just in grain, that's in most other products as well. And and reasonably good seasons. And I'm not just talking about 21, you know, 19 and 18 were better than average. And it's a combination of, of those other years behind this extraordinarily good year that uh, is pushing the barrow as well. And so is that translating into inflated values of farmland in places like the wheat belt? Look, it's uh, certainly pushed the barrow. You know, there's since last year, this time last year, let's say January 21 to today, we probably have seen in the greater majority of the wheat belt and the Great Southern, which I classify the same, you know, another 20% increase in values. Now, that's a bit of a, a loose figure, but there is evidence certainly in the higher rainfall belts that 20% in the last 12 months is certainly there. And I think anywhere that's had a reasonable season, 20% might be a, a low end. There might be sections of the more marginal wheat belt that won't have increased by that much, but it won't be far behind. So, I mean, 20%, that is remarkable in 12 months. Do you see that as largely farmer-to-farmer transactions? Is that accounting for for most of that uh, uptick in turnover, but also what's driving those values up as well? Yes, that's, that's right. I mean, look, it's a combination of the impact of just less properties being on the market and then the ability of the local farmers to compete with the uh, international market. Probably if we go back 10 years and maybe further, you know, the international market pretty well had it to themselves. But that's all changed around now with, um, again, with a run of good seasons, the local farmers are being able to take it up to the corporate buyers. And so, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a bit of both. And the market is what it is supply and demand. From what you're hearing, are there any areas, you mentioned the higher rainfall zones, but within that higher rainfall zone sort of strip, are there any areas that are performing particularly hot from what you're hearing? Well, purely from a a real estate marketing point of view, the Great Southern certainly is is hot, but they're not on their own. I think anything above the 350 mil rainfall belt is hot and We're seeing a lot of properties turn over before they meet their um, critical date, which might be the date of auction or the date of closure or expression of interest or whatever way it might be going. A lot of these places are being taken up and ahead ahead of the time. I'm interested in your take on, you know, you mentioned that last year's good year is one factor and and a few successive reasonable years. But basically, is this seen by some farmers is it just the optimum time to 
cash in their chips and move on while they can capitalise? Well, certainly my take on it is that there is no better time if you're thinking of moving out of the industry then, you know, these next eight weeks is the time to be doing it. Who knows what next year's season's going to be like. And I guess the other looming thing is the amount of media that's been given towards inflation and the impact perhaps on interest rates. And the third factor there is the uh, the cost of production has, you know, pretty well skyrocketed in the last five months. So, you know, they are, they are the most important indicators of, of where we may be going. And I'm not saying that's going to be uh, causing a downturn in where we're at, but it certainly might have an impact on the upturn. So really a lot hangs on how this next season goes for those that are buying up or expanding. Oh, very much so. Yeah. You know, it's if we have a, a continuation of the, the season that we've just had, that'd be great for those that have bought. But, you know, the, the signs are be cautious because of... The other two important factors in um, cost of production and is inflation going to start to play a role? It certainly is playing a role with the cost of production. So given those factors, and if we whip out the crystal ball for a second, what you're saying is that there is a fair amount of risk and, and this year will be quite pivotal in what happens with land values moving forward over the medium term, medium to long term. Very much so. I think, you know, we've, we've seen an escalation in price that we haven't seen before over the past 12 months and probably go back two or three years. And usually with agriculture, we see a plateau. And, you know, to duplicate 21 season, uh, seeing those commodity prices go up again would, I think, be highly unlikely. But, you know, it's a funny thing, the market, and so who knows? And, you know, on top of that, you've got the driving down force of inflation. Mm. So, look, I'm, I might be a bit pessimistic with this, but certainly the outcome of that may be that we have hit a plateau price-wise, and I'm now speculating, but uh, that that's the indications that are out there. And as I've just said, for somebody thinking that that's the case and they want to exit the industry, the ne- the next eight weeks is the time to be doing it. Just finally, there's obviously changes to the way that foreign capital can come in. The Foreign Investment Review Board now has to scrutinise all purchases of land. It used to have a threshold. It's now down. That threshold is $0. Do you think that that is impacting buyer activity? Look, our industry thought that that may well have an impact, but we are still seeing you know, the overseas corporate market playing a, a major role here in WA. So, yeah, look, it hasn't had a a bearing at this moment, as much as it may have indicated that it could do when it um, when those changes came about. So the price of livestock is also well and truly up, very healthy prices across both sheep and cattle. What bearing do you think that that's having on property values? I think it's having some bearing on values. If, if you were to isolate some of the stock areas that are purely stock, perhaps the, the southwest and the west coast, you know, dairy and beef, it would appear that while the pressure is on for the market to increase because of, you know, the stock commodity price, it hasn't had the same result of lifting to the levels of the mixed farming wheat belt. So, you know, they are different regions altogether and the, and the cash flows are totally different. But I suppose for those areas like dairy, 
the dairy commodity price for milk uh, is stabilised from two years ago, and we uh, are probably going to see certainly a lift in property values, but not to the same degree as the grain belt. Although, would it be fair to say that obviously those wheat belt properties are coming off a much lower base than, say, dairy properties in the southwest? Correct. Steve Vaughan there. He's the director of Ray White Rural in WA. He was speaking with Jessica Hayes about this uptick in land values. Land prices gone up at least 20% across the south. Um, so pretty good for people who are selling. Um, and if you're interested in buying, pretty hot market for you. For some growers looking to downsize though or exit the game completely, the current market is an opportunity to cash in on hot land values while you can. Gary Waters is a broadacre farmer based at Coolin, about 300 kilometres southeast of Perth. He's just sold off about 400 hectares and says the value of land fetched more than double what he paid for it back in 2013. A little bit more than we thought land values were, but at the end of the day, we're all happy. Well, we're certainly happy, so can't complain. Yeah, so this year was such a good season for you and for everyone across the board almost. Can you explain how that played into your decision to sell now? Well, we always had anticipated to try and offload land to a degree anyway, so because we're getting that age bracket, we probably need to uh, have a five-year plan on getting out of farming or, you know, to work out where we were heading. So, yeah, the ideal opportunity when lands, you know, when the season's good, it's the ideal chance to get out to try and capture a bit of the market and see what happens. At the end of the day, if we didn't sell, we didn't sell, but can't complain about what we did. And so what effect has selling your land had on your neighbours and valleys around you, if any at all? Uh, I think it probably will have an effect for our area, only because we've probably been a bit undervalued anyway. Um, you go west of Coolum, not too far west, and the land values have been well and truly up the price of what I've got. So it's just a matter of just a matter of time before it started going east further and further. And the, we were probably fortunate we had a block of land that was in demand because it wasn't far out of town. So that really helped us with our selling and everything else. You know, had plenty of interest in it for the size of the land and you know the availability of land around there. Cool and broad acre farmer Gary Waters speaking with Georgia Hargreaves about selling his land, 400 hectares, um, just sold off for more than double what he paid for it about 10 years ago. I wonder if you're buying, if you're selling, if you're looking, what have you seen around your area? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. You heard earlier from Ray White Rural um, saying at least about 20% uptick in land values. I wonder... How you feel about that, get in touch on the text line 0448922604. The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Weather shortly, um, but first there is no denying that farming has changed a lot in recent years. There's always new approaches being developed to address some of the challenges the industry is facing. And it's expected that technology will play a big role in helping the National Farmers Federation reach its goal of agriculture being a $100 billion industry by 2030. 
In November, Tracy Martin was appointed as the Australian Agri-Tech Association's first full-time CEO. She says it's, uh, she, she talked about what she's hoping to achieve in the role during the year and well beyond. We're working on building a strong ecosystem here in Australia for the industry to ensure that we have a vibrant industry in Australia because Australia's future prosperity relies on that. We must ensure that we deliver local solutions to Australian challenges and take advantage of the benefits that technology will bring to rural and regional Australia. What have been your priorities since you've come on board? I've been meeting and speaking with a lot of leaders in the agri-tech companies in Australia. There's great optimism right across the industry and they're really excited about what they can contribute in the years ahead. There's many forms of agri-tech companies. Some are start-ups, some are scale-ups. But the overwhelming theme is that they're really committed to supporting the agricultural sector and rural and regional Australia and Australia to meet its climate commitments. There's some key areas that we're focusing on in 2022. And um, one of the big events that we've got coming up on the 18th of February um, at 10am is the inaugural National Agritech Summit. It's really important to us as the National Association to draw together agri-tech companies and leaders and key stakeholders from right across the country to come and talk about the key issues impacting the sector and also the opportunity. Developing new technology can be expensive. Is there enough support available for startups and those wanting to commercialise their agri-tech projects? What we're finding is investment in the agri-tech industry in Australia is really only about 5% of the investment which is available globally. We really need to drive investment in the agri-tech industry here in Australia and that's one of our key roles at the association and we're working directly with government on that including Austrade and other key partners. We also work directly with agri-tech dedicated venture capitalist firms to really make sure that they have an understanding of what the Australian agri-tech industry has to offer. What do you think the key is to ensuring that Australia's agri-tech industry is successful? Look, it's collaboration right across the country with states which are doing incredible work to develop their agri-tech within their regions and their agricultural sectors. But it's, it's important to have a national strategy for the agri-tech industry and ensure that the agri-tech industry, because of its commercial expertise in really taking research and technology to market and getting practical solutions on the ground, um, to include it in government-led projects, research-led projects, and to have us, have us at the table right from the beginning. The agri-tech industry straddles two different portfolios. Uh, there'd be elements of it that sit under agriculture and then there's others that sit under telecommunications. Are you concerned its importance might slip through the cracks? Look, we are concerned about that and we've raised that with a number of federal ministers. It definitely spans connectivity, telecommunications, energy, water, even your mining rehabilitation. It's got a key role in climate adaption and the carbon market. So the amount of policy engagement that we need to do to really ensure that our policymakers understand like, the role of the agri-tech industry and what it has to offer and how important it is to meeting both our climate commitments but also productivity targets in agriculture and those other industries I've mentioned is really quite a, it, it, it's quite a big job. And what we would like to see at a federal level is a cross-portfolio approach 
and a really clear strategy coming forward from government about how it's going to ensure that the agri-tech industry is included in policy making and make sure that it provides um, and reaches its potential within Australia. You've been in this role since November. What kind of projects are you coming across in the ag tech space that people could expect to hear more about in the future? We're seeing some really great innovations from our agri-tech companies, really practical solutions that can be made available very quickly. So, for example, Bitwise uses an off-the-shelf GoPro to connect into their IT platform, which helps agricultural producers analyse their crops. Um, companies like Sarah's Tag have commercialised direct satellite ETAG and they have interest not just from right across Australia but also um, overseas governments are having a look at, at, at the product. We're also seeing a strong trend towards collaboration between agri-techs so that they can start to provide uh, much more integrated whole-of-farm solutions and um, APIs, which is where the various pieces of the technology are talking to each other and the farmer or the supply chain can just have a one view of the information that they need. People might be surprised to hear that Australia's space agency could even play a role in developing agri-tech. What might that involve? Satellite imagery is essential to um, many of the agri-techs working here in Australia they take very detailed mapping of the Australian landscape and that supports agricultural producers to understand the land and what's happening on it. We've got very large land masses here in Australia and that's incredibly helpful. The other way that it can support is to give us an understanding of what's happening in our oceans and one area that we need to consider at the moment is development of new feed for cattle to reduce methane emissions and that's algae having collaborations into the future with the space agency that helps us to start to map and understand changes in ocean temperatures which might affect algae growth and development of algae which will reduce methane emissions is something in the pipeline. That is the CEO of Australian Agritech Association, uh, Tracy Martin. She was speaking with Kelly Hollingworth. It's 25 to 1. G'day, this is Colin Briley from Indie Station and you're listening to the Country Hour of the ABC. And I was very happy to see that Indie Station had a bit of rainfall. I'll go through those rainfall totals for you very shortly. But first, let's get a wrap of the weather right across the state. Caroline Crow is the duty forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology today. Caroline, let's kick off in the South Westland Division. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Michelle. Um, so at the moment, there's a trough uh, right near the west coast, um, and that's going to be the dominant feature over the next couple of days and uh, exactly where that trough moves. So at the moment, uh, through the southwest land division, we've pretty much got clear conditions throughout. Uh, it's pr- pretty hot through um, a good part of the southwest land division as well. So temperatures are reaching into the 40s through the, uh, inland parts of the central west and into the central wheat belt as well. And then as you get sort of towards uh, head south a little bit into the um, Great Southern, they're into the mid 30s. And then a little bit cooler as you get towards that south coast and just a little bit cooler there on these sort of west coastal parts there as well. Into the next couple of days, um, on Friday, the trough is going to be very close to the 
uh, west coast again and very similar conditions, um, pretty much clear throughout and uh, looking at similar temperatures as well. So very hot in northern parts and gradually cooling a little bit cooler as you head further south and along that south coast. Coming into Saturday, the trough is going to start moving inland um, and it does start to deepen as well. So um, as that trough deepens, we are looking at some fresh northeasterly uh, winds ahead of the trough, so on that eastern side of the trough, and then behind the trough there'll also be a southwesterly change, and that's pretty fresh as well. So, coming into Saturday and even into Sunday, as the trough continues to move east, those uh, fresh winds will um, still be there, particularly in the morning in those northeasterlies, and we might see some blowing dust around, but otherwise generally clear through most parts, uh, except for those southeastern parts. There, when as that trough deepens, we might see some mid-level showers and thunderstorms through the parts of the Gascoyne, southern parts of the Gascoyne and into the south coastal district and extending into the Euclid on Sunday as that trough continues to move east. Temperatures, uh, those hot temperatures will move with the trough inland as well. So uh, as the trough moves inland, very hot temperatures sort of around those 40 degree mark uh, will continue to move east and reach um, sort of central and eastern parts of the southwest land division and into the um, southeast of the state as well. And along the west coast and west of the trough and sort of along the south coast we'll start seeing a little bit cooler conditions as those winds turn southwesterly. In the north is there still more rain on the way? Yeah, it's been pretty active in the northern parts. There's a trough that extends sort of from the Kimberley interior area and through into the Pilbara and a broad trough there and it's been fairly active. So we've got showers and thunderstorms through the Kimberley into the Pilbara into uh, northern parts of the Gascoigne and adjacent parts of the North Interior. That's today and going to be very similar conditions tomorrow. Also very hot in northern parts of the state as well, reaching into the 40s. Coming into Saturday, uh, the trough moves a little bit away uh, from the west coast sort of in that Pilbara area so the showers and thunderstorms will contract a little bit sort of more towards the east but still effectively through the Kimberley into central eastern parts of the Pilbara extending into the northeast Gascoigne and they will actually extend a little bit further south and reach those northern parts of the gold fields and then extending into Sunday very similar and just extending a little bit further down the trough and into that south interior there so quite active in the north showers and thunderstorms very hot um, and I should have also mentioned that we do have a low to severe um, heatwave conditions at the moment but that is uh, gradually easing um, those conditions over the next couple of days. Okay, the, there is a lot of warm weather about you have mentioned and we have some total fire bands to read out in just a minute um, but can you run through the warnings before I let you go? Uh, yes, so we do have some fire weather warnings. Um, so there's a catastrophic fire danger, sorry, for the Gascoigne Coast today um, and also severe to extreme uh, fire danger ratings uh, through the Gascoigne, um, the remainder of the Gascoigne and into the central west and northern parts of the southwest land division. And we also have some marine uh, coastal wind warnings as well. So it's pretty fresh to strong along the west coastal part. So we have strong wind warnings extending from the Lewin Coast up through into... Um, the Lancelin coast and then also from um, the Dingaloo coast there and also the Gascoigne coast. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michelle. Caroline Crow is the duty forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology today. It is 22.1. A quick check of the rainfall. Looking at totals over five millimetres for the 24 hours to nine o'clock this morning. Uh, of course, mainly in the Kimberley, but a couple in the Pilbara as well. In the Kimberley, Drysdale River Station had six millimetres. Fitzroy Crossing, Aero 31. Flora Valley, six mils. Fossil Downs, five. Gibb River, 14. Jubilee Downs,
Suns, seven. Kununurra, the Aero had 39. Deep Herd had 26 in Kununurra. At Lake Argyle Resort, 19. Lansdowne, nine millimetres. Leopold Downs, 14. Lombardina, Aero had 10 mils. Marion Downs, 20. Mount Barnett, 24. Mount House Airstrip, six millimetres. Napier Downs, 23. Parry Creek Farm, six mils. Wyndham Aero, six. Yampy Sound, 30 millimetres. In the Pilbara, Indy had 21 millimetres, Marble Bar 13, and hello to the crew at Yarry Station, 12 millimetres at Yarry. That is it for the rainfall for the rest of the state. Nothing in the south, nothing else worth mentioning elsewhere. ABC Radio, fire ban information. There is a total fire ban today for parts of the Midwest, Gascoigne, Southwest and Perth metropolitan regions. That includes the local government areas in the Midwest, Gascoigne of Carnarvon, Chapman Valley, Kew, Greater Geraldton, Meekathara, Minganew, Morrowa, Mountain Magnet, Murchison, Northampton, Sandstone, Shark Bay, Apic. Upper Gascoigne, Waluna and Yalgoo. In the Perth metro region, Armadale, Chittering, Jinjin, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Jaredale and Swan. And in the southwest region, Murray and Waruna. During a total fire ban, you must not light fires for cooking, camping or outdoor entertainment. That includes solid fuel barbecues, fire pits and bonfires. You cannot carry out hot work, including grinding, welding and gas cutting in an area that is not fully enclosed. You can't go off-road driving using a four-wheel drive, quad bike, motorbike, uh, bobcat or similar vehicles, except for agricultural purposes. We don't believe there are any harvest and vehicle movement bans imposed by local governments, um, but best to check with your local government if you aren't too sure. There is more info about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban on the DFIS website. There is also a map of the affected areas at emergency.wa.gov.au. But just repeating, there is a total fire ban today for parts of the Midwest Gascoigne, Southwest and Perth metropolitan regions. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour. Let's head over east now. Things are very different to the situation here in WA, particularly when we're talking about COVID-19, but it is interesting to see how things are being handled. The Australian Meat Industry Council is calling on the government to supply free rapid antigen tests to the sector. It also wants access to PCR tests quickly, and is asking for food supply chain workers to be treated the same as health workers. Otherwise, the outcome could be catastrophic, according to AMIC CEO Patrick Hutchison. He says staff shortages have already forced down a number of processes on the East Coast and there are big issues coming with meat supply. It looks like we're in some very, very big trouble very quickly. Um, we've been doing a ring around of members in New South Wales and also in Victoria. A number of very large facilities can't work or if they are working, are working on a heavily reduced shift just to try and meet some domestic orders. They are and, and all based around the issue of isolation where certainly from our visa workers but also more broadly one person because of household contacts if one person has it then uh, down you go. So inevitably you have to wait that seven days and this is just going to repeat itself over and over and over and over again. 
So are there processes that have shut down entirely? Uh, at this stage, yes. Uh, they just can't work. So, you know, they, they would just not be working for that day, hoping the next day that they'll be able to have enough staff to actually start the process and uh, complete that. But, you know, we're hearing uh, that supermarkets potentially will be just having basic lines running through their facilities uh, as well because, uh, you know, the town members that get it to a specific point for domestic supermarkets, but then they'll have to... Uh, they, they then process it, obviously, and uh, bone it and uh, package it. We're hearing that they're being impacted as well. So we're going to see a very strong potential, certainly on the meat side, for a food shortage if we do not get policy settings right and quickly. Yeah, and with a meat shortage comes an increase in prices. Most definitely, but probably more importantly, it's not just about that increase in price, it's just availability. You know, there is still school holidays, of which I'm on. I, I'm a... Here in Noosa at the moment, I could tell you, trying to get a meal uh, alone yesterday was nigh on impossible because a number of restaurants, etc., can't get staff or have closed down due to uh, ISO impact. So we've really got to start to take a breath here and look at the food supply chain in the same way we've looked at health. And that is, is that ISO does not be required for people working in the food industry if, in fact, they're showing a rapid antigen test with a negative result. We can't have this situation where people are then going to be in a scenario where they just can't come to work at all, especially those that are fully vaccinated. And our industry has led the charge in 2021 on uh, the manufacturing side in Australia for getting people fully vaccinated. So we're really in a massive quandary at the moment because we can't also get rapid antigen tests and they're demanding people take a PCR test the PCR test result is taking longer than isolation is taking uh, as per the current close contact definition. So it's almost pointless going through this whole process. Do you know how many processes who, as a precaution, are rapid antigen testing staff? I think that we have seen across Australia people looking to make that implementation now, and they had been months previous. We've been demanding access to free rapid antigen testing since uh, September last year. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously with, to no avail. And because we have seen the changes in isolation policy, changes in testing policy, changes in contact definition was coming. So the meat industry was out there talking to, you know, Prime Minister, Office of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Office of Home Affairs, Office of Health, as well as a state level to say, you need to be having rapid antigen testing ready. You need to be making it part of the process. It didn't happen. And now we're going to be, like we were doing for vaccination positions, we are going to be once again fighting with the community to get access to rapid antigen testing. Yeah. Which in turn is going to ensure that we won't get enough and then uh, we're going to be in a position where we're not treated in the way that health has been treated, and then we're going to have a food shortage. So it is very unfortunate, but there is limited that we can do at this stage. And we are seeing sheep plants, beef plants, Victoria, New South Wales, 70, 80, up to 100 people not being able to come to work. Now, that's just going to close facilities for weeks and weeks at a time each and every time that there's a scenario that's going to occur. The impact on farming, whilst slaughter is low in January to early Feb, the impact on 
exports and on farmers is going to be fairly catastrophic if we don't get something fixed pretty soon. Yeah, so what's going to happen to our exports if we can't even meet domestic supply? Well, certainly probably from a frozen perspective, there uh, is probably inventory that's going to be utilised anyway. You know, we were able to at least get product off to the end of December for uh, certainly Christmas periods around the world. But now moving forward, we certainly have a much, uh, a much broader issue that even if we are able to maybe do slaughter, what happens if loadout uh, is then impacted? Product is going to remain at facilities for, you know, for a length of time. So, you know, it's just an unfortunate vicious circle. Our position is very, very simple. Free access to a large amount of rapid antigen tests that this, the food supply chain needs now. We also need to ensure that we have access to PCR test results quickly. And thirdly, what we need to be making sure of is that uh, food supply chain workers are treated exactly the same way as health workers are in order to ensure that the food supply chain domestically is going to withstand this. Because at the moment, it does not look like it will. Patrick Hutchinson is the CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council. He was speaking with Kim Honan. We have reached out to some of the WA meat processors to try and get a handle on how they are preparing for the WA borders reopening, COVID testing um, protocols, that kind of thing. Uh, we, will, we will be sure to bring you that information as soon as we can in the coming days. Um, but you just heard the Australian Meat Council, Industry Council warn that work Workers at many processing plants are getting sick at the same time and that a number of plants have been forced to cut back or close and fears of uh, food shortages in the supermarkets. Uh, In response to this and and sort of the major issues in supply chains, in New South Wales supermarket giant Coles has introduced purchase limits on meat products. So um, that is what's happening in New South Wales clearly very different situation for you in WA um, but we will keep an eye on that to see how it plays out over the next few weeks because just one month away from the borders reopening in Western Australia it's nine minutes to one you're listening to the country hour on ABC radio WA It's lovely to have your company. Michelle Stanley is my name, spending the week with you on the Country Hour. Belinda Varischetti will be back with you next week. But before we get to the news at one o'clock, an iconic 80s wedding flower could help fix problems with toxic boron levels on Australian farms. And as Georgia Hargreaves explains, a Carnarvon trial might solve some other problems as well. The flower is baby's breath. Its dainty white blossoms have featured in lots of wedding bouquets over the years. The flowers are delicate and soft, but don't be fooled. Baby's breath is as tough as anything against dry soils and harsh growing conditions. And in WA's Gascoigne region, the flower is being used to tackle toxic levels of boron in soil. This particular area in Carnarvon is highly rich in boron, the soil. And several other areas are too rich in boron in the soil because of the water. And so they start accumulating and the plant, they don't need it. It's a micro element, so they need it in small amount. And if you put too much, accumulates and becomes toxic and the plant suffers. Suffers up to the point of almost dying, actually. 
Dario Stefanelli is a senior researcher at the Department of Primary Industries and he says high levels of boron can be seen in dry, sandy soils, so often in places like Carnarvon and Esperance. Too much boron can be toxic and cause damage to crops. That's where the baby's breath comes in handy because it absorbs excess boron from the soil. We are trying with this baby breath simply because it's the easiest seed that we can get. There are others in the hibiscus family that they are other bioaccumulators, so they would actually absorb a lot of boron and store it in their upper level, so in the leaves, in the stem, in the flowers, so they become very rich in boron. And uh, the scope is exactly that, to try to mine out from the soil with these plants the boron. But if this trial goes to plan, baby's breath could be used to absorb excess boron on large-scale crops. And in this area specifically, we are testing it out because if it works, it can be taken over from growers, this particular system of bioaccumulation, and then compost it, mulch it and sell it to others that they actually have the ability that, mm. or they need it for anything. Boron deficiency in soil can also be a bit problematic. But the idea is that once the baby's breath has absorbed the boron, it can then be harvested and composted into soil in places where boron levels are too low. How cool is that? Besides the fact that they remove it from the environment, so then it's reduced the toxicity and reduced the amount in the the ground itself, you can have a secondary market for it. It's totally sustainable. It's not annual, so it's a perennial plant, so you leave it, you keep it, you just mow it, and the thing is, the only thing that you need to do is remove the above part of the plant. Either you sell it to a lot of people, you, you, you start to, to promote uh, easy weddings. Yeah, you could start a floristry with your baby's breath. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, start, you can do that, or you can um, remove it, mulch it, compost it, and, and then sell it to places where they have deficient in boron. And it's uh, organic, it would go for regenerative agriculture, it would go for uh, improving soil health, and it will go for uh, trying to actually get better carbon. And so it will contribute, let's say, to all of the new policies and new things that Australia is trying to do to reduce carbon emissions. It's our job to be forward-thinking and trying to show solutions that they would actually be valid for the future and not simply for solving the problem that you had yesterday, but is trying to solve the problem that we will have tomorrow as well. Deep Herd lead researcher Dario Stefanelli just talking about the use of the flower baby's breath to reduce boron levels in soil on their um, persimmon trial in Carnarvon. And Georgia Hargraves brought you that report. It is five to one on the country hour. A note on the bushfire burning in Albany. It is. It has been downgraded. There is no longer any threat to lives and homes for that fire warning that was in place for Mount Clarence in Albany. Apex Drive leading to the Apex Lookout on Mount Clarence is still closed, but make sure you do keep up to date by going to emergency WA website or and keep listening to ABC Radio. If anything changes, we will let you know. Off to the news very shortly and then the world today. But have you ever really wondered the story behind some of the recipes, some of the things you cook for dinner? Between drought, flood, hail and fire, the Foister family have copped a lot in the last three years. They've had watermelons wash away in floodwaters on a farm in the Tweed Valley in New South Wales. A freak hailstorm 
smashed 4 million avocados on their orchard at Pretty Gully in the Tenterfield Shire. But Julia Foister has documented the heartbreak of the natural disasters in There is a Story Behind Every Meal. It's a recipe book featuring the gourmet food range she developed to diversify and become less reliant on the vagaries of weather. Julia says putting the book together was quite an emotional journey. Customers actually kept asking, saying like, oh, do you have a recipe book? And so we started thinking about that. But then with all the natural disasters that hit us, I've always um, used to eat well food as a bit of a platform to give Australian farmers a voice and and telling um, the behind the, the scenes stories of what's happening on the farm. And everybody always said, oh, this is so lovely. Why don't you actually write about it? And I'm like, I'm no writer. I can't like just write a book. And here we go. Two years later, the book is released. And how hard was it for you to compile those stories of all the disasters that your family's farming operations have been through over the years? Uh, it was it was rather emotional revisiting some of it and um, I allowed myself to revisit the emotions as well because I wanted everyone to feel it, what we went through. I wanted it to be very honest and raw to, to get the reader to connect to what has happened. And you document and you share a, a number of different disasters from the hailstorms, the fires, the droughts, the flooding. Yeah, it, it was actually quite funny. We went from the floods right into the drought, and then when we thought the the drought could break finally, we saw the saw the storm coming on the radar, and that turned into hail. So that was rather heartbreaking. After you know two years of cutting water to the farms, and then when we thought we had recovered from the hailstorm, the fires hit, and it was dangerous and scary and very emotional. And Tweed Real Food, your customers have been following you for for much of your journey across the years when you've been going through these disasters. They have, and they've been just incredibly supportive. I'm so grateful because a lot of small business owners say the support of their customers allows their kids to go to rugby or ballet. It's, It's different for us. The support of our customers has allowed us to keep our family home, to keep the animals alive, the orchards alive. So, yeah, it it means so much to us and we're so grateful. So how many recipes are in the book? Nearly 65. And we have the Rise and Shine, Graze and Share, Farm Fresh Feast, and then at the end, the Treat Yourself section. And what are you hoping that customers will take away from your recipe book and your storybook? My goal with the book is to deepen the appreciation for Australian grown and you know, when, when customers sit at the table and look at their meal, I want them to know where it has come from and what the story was behind growing that meal and that they understand when they pay a certain price for an avocado, what the reason is for that. It doesn't just fill someone's pocket. A lot of heartbreak and work went into it, into mm. picking it and growing it. East Coast farmer Julia Foister, also the author of There Is a Story Behind Every Meal. She was speaking with Kim Honan. That's it from me today. I'll be with you from midday tomorrow. It's news time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.